And as I transition, I need you to hear me, because what I'm about to say is going to anger some of you or frustrate others of you. So you need to listen to what I'm saying right now until I get to the end. I believe in a free market system that is competitive capitalism with private enterprise. And I believe that system, I believe this fully, that it will produce more jobs and a higher standard of living than any other system. I believe that. I believe that firmly. I believe in less government intervention. I believe in paying less taxes. I believe in less controls from the government and more freedom. I believe in the right to own property, and I believe in the right to own multiple properties at any given time. I also believe that creation care is a responsibility that comes from God. And I actually believe so firmly in that that I believe we should eliminate, uh, eliminate any single-use plastic. I believe that although paying people a living wage uh, at, in some levels can be helpful, that it actually doesn't solve the problem of affordability. It's a much more complex problem than that. And typically, when you simply raise uh, the living wage, the effects across the system are so devastating in the way that it affects other parts of the market that the living wage is no longer a living wage. And so I actually believe the approach is multifaceted. I believe that we should be offering uh, affordable housing because I don't believe that that creates the same type of market influx. I believe that we should also, or instability maybe is a better word. I believe that in that, that we should be offering people good transportation. I think that those that are on ODSP or on Ontario Works or those that are below a certain level should just have transit cards. I believe that in that, that anyone below a certain level of, of income uh, who has grades at a certain level, that we should just be paying for either their trade, which I know was often now paid for their college education or their university level education. I believe that that system is a much better system. I believe our healthcare system is broken. I believe, as I've had the privilege when I've, I've been the board chair of uh, Compass Community Health on two, uh, two occasions, once for two years, once for three years, in the 24 years that I've been a part of that organization. And so I got to look at stats coming out of the ER and ER use. And looking at the ER use, seeing that we have people in our system that use the ER over 200 days a year. And the amount that that costs our system. And so I believe that our entire medical system is broken. I believe it needs a complete overhaul. I believe that at, at times there's intentional abuse of the ER system. I believe that because our, our ER system is reactionary uh, to what occurs, instead of something that proactively is working with people ahead of time, that is part of the reason that it's broken. And that we have people that will come and use an ER, be given prescriptions for what they need, knowing as they leave the ER that they'll never fulfill those prescriptions, either because they don't have the means to do it, uh, or because they don't have the skill set to do it. I could go on. I have some very strong political ways of thinking. I just do. And why do I never talk about them on the front of a Sunday? In the 26 and a half years that I've been at James North, why are these things that I never talk about in front of everyone? Because it's not what brings us together. It's not why we gather. There, there are things like this that I'm actively involved in. I mean, 10 years ago, I emailed Andrea Horath, our MPP, and said, there's something about the provincial government and legislator around the poor and the marginalized that I strongly disagree with, and I think that, that this is actually an enslavement. I wrote, she said, come present it at legislator. I did. Months later, she wrote me a note, right? I went to legislator, presented what I thought. Months later, she wrote me a note saying, Dwayne, we have now changed legislation fully based on what you said that day. So there are times when I have strongly been an activist toward things that I think are wrong and right, but I mean, I've never talked about that here before. 
I never made it an issue. I never asked all of you to write your MPP in an issue that was very, I very strongly felt about. Why? Because that's not my role here. That's not what I do here. That's not what we do here. We gather here to worship our God and to celebrate who he is. And we're going to come with various political persuasions and opinions as we gather. We're going to come and recognize that even in God's word at times, there are general principles about this, but some of the very specifics over which we are now in debate on, God's word is silent about. In the last number of weeks, I have heard of dozens of churches that have split. In, in, in October, I've been invited to a meeting of 50 churches gathering across Canada. It's an invite-only meeting to talk about the state of the church in Canada and how we move forward. 50 pastors from across the nation have been invited to Whistler. I'm one of them. And as I go to that meeting, we're gathering to talk about what's occurring and what's happening. But I know of dozens of churches, people that I care for, that have split. I mean, in the last week, I've talked to three of those churches where the split has just been atrocious. Where in one case, where a pastor was, was fighting the government protocols and encouraging the congregation to fight it, the elders were on board for a season. They then, a week and a half ago, let him go. In that, he decided because they let him go that he would create a gathering in his house and half the church was at his house last Sunday. And then another case where a group of elders didn't want to follow the protocols and the pastor did. So in that case, the pastor resigned. And a church that I've known and loved that's been a stable, strong church for all of my memory since I was like six or seven years old, right, of 250 or so people has split right down the middle. And the pastor took a whole group and planted another church now. And the other elders are there with the other half that didn't want to follow the protocols. And it's created this mess. And people that I know cared for each other and loved for each other. People that I know that walked with each other when their spouses were dying. And walked them through death of kids. Have now split over masks. I, I sat with some of them in rooms when they're watching family members pass on and they've split over masks and decided that's the issue to divide over. I've thought a lot about this. I've thought about this from various angles. As many of you know, I've had the privilege of being the board chair of Compass Community Health. I've been on the board for over 24 years. I was the board chair when we entered into the pandemic. And I felt responsible for 130 staff, 24,000 clients. Our CEO was me. I had just led Compass through a CEO transition after our CEO who'd been there 29 years had transitioned on and moved on. And so I led the board in that transition. They asked me to stay an additional year because have I led through the transition. And in that additional year, COVID hit. And so I remember getting the public health notification. They were just flying into my inbox like leading up into that March break, right? Remember that March break? And I got them directly from public health, and so I was reading volumes of information. Tomorrow, I have another meeting with the health center because I've still on the board. I'm past chair. And, and the, the amount of material we get, I mean, it would make you... It's a book every, every time we meet. I read a book for the health center. My wife and I own a business. So, so we own Vintage Charm, and so I think about this from a business perspective. I'm the one who's come to Amy and said, hey, Amy, this is what we need to be following. This is what we need to be doing. This is not her thing. I, not, I love my wife. It's not her thing, right, to figure it all out. So I've been reading the protocols. I've been talking about it. As a, as a father and husband, as, as, as just someone who loves my kids and as a dad, to figure it out. And then lastly is the pastor of this church with a group of elders that I love to figure out the protocols, 
And it's been challenging. And so I say that as we gather, not to say that I'm uniquely qualified, but I've actually thought about this from a healthcare angle. I've thought about this from a business angle. I've thought about this from a family angle. And I've thought about this from a faith angle. And I've read volumes of information on it that have come my way from all of those sources, specifically the volumes around the healthcare one. And as we gather, I want you to know this morning, my role is for us to talk about this theologically. What does God's word tell us as we gather as his people and think through such things? How does God want us to handle this? And what do we do when people across our nation are struggling? One of the things I think we need to identify is that for whatever reason, churches across our nation, to a greater degree than most places, are battling with a protocol, uh, with, with protocol compliance. And I'd like to offer a few reasons why. Here are five. Actually, I'm going to just say it. There's six. I, I had six. I did, went down to five. I'm back up to six. Number one, I can email you these to you later if you want. I'm going to make them specific to our church. Walking into James North feels safe. It does. For some of you, it's because when you come in here, you see other people you know, and you feel a connection, like this is an extension to your family. For others, because you're in this facility so much and have been so invested in building it, it just feels like a second home. And so because you come in, you see people you're familiar with. Because you come in, you're in a facility you're familiar with. It feels very different than shopping at Walmart or Costco. Does that make sense? This feels like coming home, and that's happening at churches all over the place. Second, the bylaw can appear to be inconsistent. For example, having to be masked and socially distanced at church during a message where one person is speaking contrasted to being able to demask while you eat and talk with others at your table in a restaurant who you don't with, live with doesn't seem to make consistent sense. I get it. I really do get it. Uh, number four, number three, sorry. We have protocol fatigue. No one dreamed we'd be in this still. We have protocol fatigue. It's just exhausting. Number four, we feel a little misled, right? We believe the chief medical officer of Ontario who stated in early August that when we moved out of step three, there was no step four and that we'd be moving out of it, he said, in the next seven to 10 days. And as we moved out of step three into nothing, that the only protocols that would be lasting, he named two, that you would be posting uh, on the doors, uh, what we have now, so that people on their way in could determine whether or not they have symptoms and go home if they have them, so that there would be passive screening, and secondly, that there'd be some restrictions around international travel. He never mentioned mass protocol. We all assumed that meant they were going away, but they didn't, and so we feel misled. Number five, the consequences for civil disobedience at work and at church are different. Some people risk disciplinary action and job loss for not following the protocols at work, and that degree of reprimand doesn't exist at church. I mean, what's going to happen if you don't wear your mask at church? Dwayne's going to talk to you. How has this become, I'm not, the elders have not made this my job, I'm just saying, but like, how does this become my job? That is, this is not my job description, right, to figure this out. And yet that's what's happening, and I, and I get it. It's just the, the reprimand here is different than the reprimand that happens when you walk into your workplace. Lastly, I'll say this, and I've said this to a group of pastors this week in a, in a Zoom call. I said, and, I, and they asked me to write it, but I said, listen, I don't have time. I'm pastoring James North. Some of these people just love to blog. I'm like, you can take my thoughts and blog them. Don't need to give me credit for it. Just do it, right? But I believe that what's happened in our day is we're confusing our civil liberties and our religious freedoms, and we have somehow conflicted. We, we've somehow made the two one issue. And there are civil liberties that we should be fighting for. 
and there are protocols of which we're allowed to do it, and there is religious freedom of which we have rights. But sometimes we're confusing the two. And I know there may be other reasons that you're thinking of right now that is why churches are battling over this at a whole new level and is why it's become the battleground. But can I just talk to you about this? As we figure out what this looks like, I want to offer some guiding principles this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 2. The verses will be up on the screen. Philippians 2, beginning at verses 1 to 4. I just want you to hear God's word. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete. Be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and of mind, do nothing under selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So the apostle here in the second chapter of Philippians, as he writes to the church in Philippi, is talking about church unity. And as he's talking about church unity, he makes some assumptions in verse 1 and 2. Note what he says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, the answer is, of course we do. Are you not encouraged that Christ has saved you? I mean, being united with Christ, we were his enemies. Our sin created us to be in a place where we were in opposition with God, and he saved us. He chooses to save us. He gloriously allows us to be children of God. And he says, do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? The answer should be, amen, I do. Any comfort from his love? Aren't you thankful that Christ gave his life up so that mine is spared the wrath of God. Aren't you thankful that the love of God is so amazing that it shields us from the wrath of God? Aren't you thankful that God's love is so great that anyone, anywhere, anytime who believes in Jesus is accepted into his family as a child of God? Is that not great news? God loves to save. And so we have comfort from his love. Sharing with the Spirit. If you're saved today, God's Spirit is in you. And we have this common sharing in the spirit and tenderness and compassion. So Paul says, these are the assumptions I'm making in your life based on you being a child of God. So be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and mind. Paul says, this is the result of the work of Christ in your life. Because these assumptions are true, you can be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and purpose or mind. This is what happens. This is the 2011 version of the NIV. I have the book of Philippians memorized in the 1984 version of the NIV. And you will hear me, even when I get to the Christ hymn, my mind just continually flows back to the 2011 version. In fact, I memorized it with some people here at James North years ago. Some people came to me at the service and saw I knew what you were doing because I did it too. My mind just goes back to that version. That's what's happening here. Um, so, so this is something that is so important for us to think about. And it's often something we miss. Do you know that you have more in common with a believer than anyone else? You have more in common with a believer than anyone else. Now, most of us will theoretically say that's true, but we don't live it out. Theoretically, we'll say, well, that's true. Of course that's true, but we don't live it out. We actually feel like we have more camaraderie with the people we play hockey with. 
more camaraderie with the people we work with. If like we're all engineers or we're all hockey players or we're all cyclists or whatever it is, we feel like we have more in common with them because we can talk about the hobby or talk about work or talk about whatever it is. But the truth is, when God has saved you, everything about the world's philosophy and ideology is in opposition to what God is thinking, to how God would have us live. And what God does is he begins to take us and he begins to transform us so that we think the way he would have us think. And so I have more in common with a brother or sister in Christ than anyone in the world regardless of my affiliation with them in the world. If you're pushing back on that right now in your heart and mind saying, is that really true, Dwayne? Like, here's why. Because so often, even when we meet with other believers, we talk about the same things we talk about with the world with. Job, sports, hockey. There's nothing wrong with talking about your job or sports or family or whatever it is. But the most important thing you should be talking about is the things of the Lord. When we gather with other believers, we can talk about hockey, but we should also be talking about what God's doing in our heart, what God's doing in our lives, what the Lord has been teaching us lately. We should be talking about the things of God. And recognizing in that that what we have in common is so much greater than anyone else I could be having a conversation with. And so then the apostle says this, do nothing. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In our narcissistic day where self is king, where we think the universe revolves around us, Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourself. He says, think and live for others first. So if I was just able to look at your schedule for the last week, I was able to take your day planner and just kind of look through it. If I was able to take your bank account and look through it, right, what you spent with your debit card and your credit cards, my, my bank system is still linked to our kids. Um, I said to Ethan, I was willing to release him from this. Like, he's 20. He said, nah, Dad, it's actually good for me. Occasionally, you remind me about what I'm spending. But I can just go on and click, and I can see everything my kids are spending anytime I want. Just on an app, press of a button. I can just see it all the time. And, and um, I did it when they were younger to kind of help them out. Now that Ethan's 20, I said, listen, you, you can be on your own. He said, actually, if I'm on my own, I might go bankrupt. So if you could help me, that'd be great. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'll help you for a while, but at some point, your wife, when you get married, will not want me to be able to do this. Just so you know, there will be a point in time where you need to cut this off. But if I was able to look at that, what would it say about you and the way that you think about yourself and the way you think about others? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Is everything you spent, is your schedule all about you? Is it about what you want? Is it about what you desire? Is it about you? How much of it was spent on behalf of others this week, about caring for someone else, about extending grace to someone else, about helping someone else? How much of the resource that you spent this week, was it spent on others? Was it helping others? Was it coming alongside of others? Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he says, in humility, consider or value others above yourselves. I remember years ago, I, I preached this passage a number of times. I was at a conference. I preached it, and someone said to me, how am I supposed to value others better than me when I know I'm better than them? I'm like, what? They're like, how am I supposed to value someone better than me when I know I'm better than them? I'm like, all right, you've got a problem. Just, just in coming to me says you have a problem. But, I mean, that's often just how we feel. This person was just able to articulate it, Right? But often that's how we feel. We see someone, we think, oh, I'm more qualified than them. I know more than them. Oh, I've done more. I'm better. Like, why would I listen to them? 
and we act as if people are beneath us. Whereas the apostle says here, no, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Think of them as knowing more, as being more accomplished. Not only uh, not looking, sorry, to your own interests, but the interests of others. He said, your, your schedule shouldn't be about what you want. You know, so often when I get frustrated in my house, it's because something goes awry in the schedule. I just get upset because something's gone awry, right? Yesterday, I went to the gym, cycled to the gym and back, um, and then I'm cleaning the house before we went to the wedding. And I was cleaning the bathrooms, and I'd cleaned part of the upstairs bathroom. I went downstairs to get something. I came back up just a few minutes later. I got to the sink. I just cleaned. I was about to clean the toilet. We have three bathrooms. And somehow one of the kids has used the sink in the four minutes I was gone, and it's been desecrated. And I had it spotless. And I'm like, how is this, how, how is this even possible in the four minutes that I've left the bathroom that this could occur? And then it's just easy. I didn't yesterday. I do this on occasion. Yesterday I didn't. It's just so easy to get frustrated and upset and be like, hey, everybody, bathroom now. Now. Who did this? Right? What's going on? Did you not see how I left it? Do you see how you left it? Is there a difference? Should I be taking pictures and posting them? I didn't do that. But it would all have been about my schedule, about what I had to accomplish, about what I was doing. I'm not saying you shouldn't teach your kids about cleanliness. You should. But... So often it's just about my schedule and time frame. And here's why. Here are some of the reasons why we struggle with these things. We think it's my way or no way. We think it's my way or no way. We're convinced that we're right. We move on to the second reason. We think it's none of my business. We see someone struggling with something. We're like, I can't, I can't get involved there. It's none of my business. Whereas as brothers and sisters in Christ, not in a nosy way, not in a meddling way, but in a gracious, kind, loving way, it is our business. We're part of the family of God, and we want to care for each other and love each other. Thirdly, we think it's none of your business. Like, leave me alone. Stay out of my stuff. Right? And lastly here, this is kind of a joint thing, but we reverse Romans 12, 15, where it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We instead rejoice with those, we sorry, mourn with those who rejoice and rejoice with those who mourn. Somebody gets a promotion of some kind and we're like, why was it them? Right? Instead of rejoicing with them, we actually mourn. Somebody, maybe even because of their own doing, ends up in a mess, whatever that mess would be. And instead of mourning with them when they're in that mess, we're like, they had it coming to them. They brought this on themselves. And we reverse what Scripture asks us to do. We actually take it and we do the opposite. We're to mourn with people who mourn. We're to come along inside and say, oh, let me grieve with you. We're to rejoice when people are celebrating. Why? What is Paul's rationale to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? In humility, value others above yourselves. Not look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 5. In your relationships with each other and the way you interact with each other, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. He said, let Jesus be your guiding principle. And he explains it. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness 
uh, sorry, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul says this is what should be driving you right here. I want you to understand your driving motivation. Jesus, who being in very nature God, or you could translate essentially God, in essence God, Jesus, the second person of the triune God, didn't consider that type of equality with the Father and the Spirit something to be grasped or held onto or to be taken advantage of. He didn't say, I'm going to lord it over you. But rather, he did what? He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became human. I mean, I've said this so many times here, but he cloaks his deity with humanity. The God who spoke the sun, moon, and stars into place confined himself to a woman's womb for nine months. He just chose to do that. He's birthed. I mean, is that not staggering to even think about? The creator of all things is birthed. And Mary had to feed him and burp him, change him. He was that helpless at birth. And he chose to do that. Why? The God of the universe chose to serve in that way. Why? Because of his love for us. Because he wanted us to be able to be reconciled to himself. And then in human likeness, what did he do? The word keeps going and it says, he was found in appearance as a man and so he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, when Jesus was here, he could have been the greatest ruler of anyone. He could have called the sea to his command and wipe out his enemies. Legion of angels to his command and wipe out his enemies. But instead, he allowed his enemies to crucify him. And he becomes obedient to death. I mean, the great physician bled, the author of life in the person of Christ dies on the cross. Why? Because of his great love for us. Because he was willing to set aside his prerogatives, his rights as deity in order to serve us, in order to come alongside of us. He was willing to lay down his life so we could live. And Paul says simply, in your relationships with others, live just like that. In your relationships with others, live just like that. Be willing to lay down your life so others can live. And we know that then God exalted him, giving him the name that's above every name. That one day at that name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whew. But I mean, let's just confess that's hard, isn't it? I mean, I find it hard to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In fact, I find it impossible. I find it hard to value others above myself. I find it hard to look to their interests first and not just my own. Because I think about me more than I think about anyone even though I love my family deeply. So how do you do it? Well, verse 12. 
So dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You can't work for your salvation. Salvation is God's gift to you. But you are to work out your salvation. That means when you come to a passage like this and go, I'm not there yet. God says, I know you're not. And I'm going to work in you. So you keep working out your salvation. Why with fear and trembling? Because he's God and we're not. Because he's the supreme being of the universe who called the universe into existence, sustaining it by his might and will. He's God, we're not. And there's a healthy sense of me acknowledging who he is and recognizing I'm not him. I'm not God. And so what comes, what happens at this point, we realize, man, I can't do this. And he says, yeah, so continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to come before the Lord and say, yeah, well, God, would you help me? Spirit of God, would you allow me to do this? God, I'm struggling because I, as I talk to this person, I think I'm better than them. God, I'm struggling because I'm looking to my own interests again. God, I'm struggling because I'm doing this out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. God, would you help me? And what does God say he'll do? It's right there in the verse. God will work in you to will and to act according to fulfill, in order, sorry, to fulfill his good purpose. Is that not good news? God will help you. God's right there with you. God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't left you aside. God doesn't walk away from you. God's right there with you. When you ask for his help, he's right there to help. When you ask him to walk alongside of you, he's right there to do so. God will continue to work it in you. And so I read this passage this week going through this and thought, God, I need your help. Because God, I don't do this well. I struggle with this with my own family. I struggle with this sometimes leading the church. I struggle with this when I'm on the board of the health center. I struggle with this wherever it would be. I get a little bit of power, and I want lots of power. My, my time is, 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 at times, I just, I just uh, work at time management because I'm so busy. And God, when I have these interruptions that come in, like the fire was a big interruption, and I had to pray through this and say, God, what's happened here, I need to walk alongside the people. I need to help people. I need to, I mean, this last Tuesday, uh, like as Paul was still off and up north, my whole Tuesday was just a write-off. I came in at 8.30 in the morning, and... and uh, a group from an indwelling, another group from an indwelling, an insurance adjuster, then another insurance adjuster because there's two companies involved, then another group, then another group, and all of a sudden it's 4.30. I'm like, I had so much to do today. But that's what God had me to do that day. And I had to say, God, would you continue to work out, or as I continue to work out my salvation, would you work in me to will and act according to your good purpose? So verse 14, as you do this, do it all without grumbling or complaint or argument. So that you can become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So the apostle says, do all things without grumbling or complaint. Whew. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Don't complain about the protocols. Don't complain about Trudeau. Don't complain about Doug Ford. I mean, what does it say? Do everything in all things live without grumbling or complaint. I mean, the world complains about everything. It's what makes the world the world. They're not thankful about anything. The world complains about their jobs. The world complains about their bosses. The world complains about their, their hobbies, the teams that they're a part of. The world complains about everything. And God says one of the things that should make you strikingly different than the world is that you don't. That you're actually a thankful people. That you live so differently it doesn't mean you can't engage the processes. I mean, I, I actually think that the healthcare system 
uh, that the community health centers, the group of them in Ontario, the way they run and operate in caring for the marginalized is one of, if not the best system I've ever had to analyze in the province. And so I've actually gone and advocated again at the provincial legislative letter uh, level for more systems like this and for a more integrated system of hospitals, uh, uh, family teams, uh, physician family teams, and, and community health centers and an integrated model and what that would look like. But as I've done that, I've had to try to do it without complaint. I mean, we live in an amazing country, don't we? There's processes that are available to us within which we can actually operate to bring to a better good. And Paul says, as you do it, as you show up at church, as you want a better society, as you run a business, do it all without complaint or argument. And then I think, Lord, I need to keep working out my salvation because I'm so much like the world that I like to complain about everything. He says, when this is true, what happens? You will be blameless and pure because you're children of God and you will be found without fault in a warped and crooked generation and you will shine like a star in the sky as you firmly hold to the word of life. Could you imagine between our two services, and I've heard about 300 of us today, right, including the children, between the two services here. If we went out from this place tomorrow and God so worked in us that no one from James North ever complained again, what would happen? I mean, first people at work would notice when they're all complaining and, and you're problem solving instead of complaining. Problem solving is not complaining, right? And they, they don't hear you complaining in the same way that they did. And they all start to take notice. And then maybe they know other people from James North. They're like, wow, what's happening here? All these people from James North. They don't complain anymore. And all we can say is that as we were working on our salvation with fear and trembling, God was working in us the ability to honor him in that way. And then we would be shining like stars in the universe to such an extent that the witness that God was granting us would speak to them so that they would come to the place of repentance and belief in the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's what he's saying, that you'll shine like a star in the universe. And so as we've tried to navigate this, it's been tough. It's why we're in two services today. We could fit everybody in one service without protocols. Oh, I long to do it. We've been here a year. Do I long to have all of us gather to worship DMAP and to hear God's people sing vibrantly again? I do. I do. Do I long for us to be together as one family? I do. I long for that. We emailed this week. I emailed public health this week and said, hey, we have a number of social services starting up again. I mean, I have been engaged with public health through this whole process and ad nauseum. In fact, they began to use us as one of the churches in Ontario. They would at times say the primary church in Ontario to help them think through some church protocols. That's why we get to celebrate communion. We, we worked with them on a better system than just no communion. Right? No baptism at a time. We're like, we'll engage with you. So I emailed public health this week and said, we're starting out. I gave them four examples of things we're starting. The hub, coffee's on, youth minute. I just said, these are things that we do. We want to be able to follow the protocols. We want to be able to honor this. We're not sure how this all works right now with vaccination passports and stuff. And, and we need some help. And this was their honest reply, and I'm so thankful for it. Public health messaged me back and said, we don't know either right now. Now that wasn't helpful. So I appreciate their honesty. They, they've been great working with us. And they said, Dwayne, as soon as we figure this out, we'll let you know. And we know it's hard because you're starting these programs right now. 
And I appreciated their honesty, and I appreciated them being willing to talk with me about this, and I, I've appreciated as we've gone back and forth on this. So I understand the frustration, I do. Because when my answer on the email is, like listing them four programs that are starting this week, wanting to try to do our best to follow protocols where we're serving food and helping the marginalized and people that are struggling and running mental health wellness groups that if we're not running, we just know people are spiraling into a bad state and they say, Dwayne, we don't know. I'm like, all right, that wasn't helpful. But then I start to work with them to try to figure out what's next. I know how frustrating this can be. But I want us, we want us, our elders to be a place that when people look at James North, they can say, there's a bunch of people that come here that do disagree with each other. And they don't see eye to eye politically on a whole bunch of levels. I mean, even their pastor is so confused. If you listen to the beginning of his sermon, he's conservative, Green Party, NDP, all rolled into one. Like, who is that? Who does he vote for? Um, and I can't say that's actually, I, we get in trouble if I did. But, um, but they look at us and say, we can't, we can't, we can't explain who they are. And the reason they can't is because they don't know our Savior. And it gives us a chance to point them to him to say the reason we are who we are, the reason we live this way is because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. And then what if it looked like that we were a place where a whole bunch of us together said, I'm going to try as I'm part of this place to be someone who does what? who lives without selfish ambition or vacancy, who in humility values others better than myself, and who not only looks, or sorry, who doesn't look to my own interests, but rather the interests of others. And why? I close with this, and then into communion. Because love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. But the three of these remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Have you ever asked yourself, why is love the greatest of these? Why is love greater than faith and hope? What if when we're having our frosty treat after the service, what if the trump sounded and the clouds part and the Lord descended? What if in that moment we actually saw Jesus? What happens? Our faith becomes sight. Our faith becomes sight. That's why Paul can say here that the greatest is love. Because one day we won't need faith. One day our faith will be sight. What about hope? Well, in that moment when our faith is sight, our hope is realized. We will see our hope. In that moment when we see our hope and we stand before the Lord in judgment for anyone who's a believer, anywhere, any place, any time, in all of history, when we stand before God in judgment and we realize that we are creatures and he is creator, we realize in that moment that we are unholy, we are, sorry, unholy, we are, we, are, we are sinners and he is holy. We recognize in that moment who he is and who we are and then the accomplished work of Christ is spoken over us and his shed blood has covered us and we hear that there's no condemnation for us because we're in Christ Jesus. That is our hope realized. Is that not good news? Our faith will be sight, our hope will be realized, but love will guide God's kingdom forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so it's how we need to engage and interact with each other now, with that kind of love, with that kind of forgiveness, with that kind of care. Because as we engage with each other, we're going to mess up. 
as we engage with each other, we're actually going to sin against each other. As we engage with each other, at times we're going to be selfish, and, and then we're going to have to say, oh, I need to work out my salvation with fear and tremble, for it's the Lord that's working this in me. And so, Jesse, you and the team can come up. And as we close, we want to celebrate communion. And maybe on the way in, you picked up a communion cup, and if you didn't, you can go out to the hallway and get one. It's simple. It's a, a piece of bread and, and, and some juice. And Jesus says, when you take this piece of bread, be reminded that I was incarnated. We talked about that today. This is my body broken for you. It reminds us that Jesus came, that he lived among us. The cup reminds us that his blood was shed for us. This cup is a simple reminder of what Christ has done for us, even out of this passage in Philippians 2. And maybe today you're divided with someone. Maybe they're here, maybe they're not. But maybe you're here, you're divided with someone. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about how we're not to take the table if we're divided between us and someone else. And if there's division between you and someone else, I would encourage you this. Before you take this cup so you don't take it in an unworthy manner, you go to that person and you ask them for forgiveness. If they're here in the room, you go across the room and you ask them for forgiveness. If they're not here, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your cup home. I want you to put it somewhere where you can remember that it's there. And every day I want to ask you to pray to God that he would grant you the courage that you could go to that person and ask them for forgiveness. Maybe they've sinned against you and you need to point that out to them and pray that they'll come to a place of repentance. Maybe you've sinned against them, I don't know. But if today you know there's division between you and someone else, whether they're here or not here, if they're here, I encourage you to do it right now in the service. If they're not and they're at another church or, 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 or they're across the country, whatever it would be, take this home with you. And say, Lord, I'm not going to take this until I'm reconciled with my brother or sister as far as it is up to me. And then talk to them. The Bible says that this cup and this bread is for believers. So today, if you've crossed that line of faith and you're a believer, I encourage you to take it. And I encourage you to celebrate what the Lord has done and continues to do in you. And if you're here today and you know there's division between you and someone else, I encourage you to take this home. And ask God to help you to continue to work out your salvation and allow him to work it in you. Would you pray with me? You are God and you are good and we're thankful for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus Christ, for us. We celebrate today this piece of bread that reminds us of your body. You incarnated yourself. You became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You did that for us. And your blood was shed on our behalf so that anyone, anywhere, anytime who would believe in you, you would save. We need you, God. We confess today that what we've heard today, we can't do without you, so God, work in us. And we thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. Thanking you in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing a song. As we sing this song, I invite you to join us. And at some point during this song, as you've examined your heart, I invite you to take this piece of bread and this cup and celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ.